All righty. So if you're just walking in, pull out page 34 and 41. We'll use that, and you will also have a handout that you're getting today. It's on the table, and we'll be referring to all of those things. And if you're hearing this online, the handout will be emailed to you by your small group leader. So if you haven't received it, just send your leader a, um, a note, or you can send it to me, Julie, at DesertSpringsChurch.org, and I can help you there too. So this last principle is called traveling through the cross. And I'm going to start with a quote from Jane Austen from Pride and Prejudice. And the quote begins like this. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a large fortune must be in want of a wife. And, And so... If you're a Jane Austen fan, you've probably read the book or you've seen the movie like me multiple times. And so if you haven't and that's something you want to do, you might not want to pay too close attention to this analogy because I'll ruin it for you. (laughs) But that's how the story starts. And it's the story of five sisters, the five Bennett sisters, and their encounters of men with various kinds of fortunes. And some of these men proved to be more suitable than others. But halfway through the book, none of them have gotten their man. The one who has come closest is Elizabeth, but she refuses the offer of, by Mr. Collins. But being a Jane Austen book, it's going to have a happy ending. And Mr. Darcy gets his woman, and Elizabeth goes willingly. And, and so what made the difference? There was a turning point in that book where Elizabeth's affection towards Mr. Darcy changed 180 degrees. And it was the noble rescue of her sister, Lydia, from the evil intentions of Mr. Wickham. So why talk about this book? Why talk about Pride and Prejudice? And it's because it's a book with two very different halves. Two very different halves. And you won't understand how they're connected unless you see how significant the turning point is. And that is what the Bible is like. It's a book of two very different halves. And there is a turning point that if you miss it, you'll miss the connection of how these books come together. And so, I use this illustration to help us to see that we need to land on that significant turning point of the Bible. And what And why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know that there is a turning point? It's because that's the point that makes this half make sense and is what helps us to make sense of this half. And because the turning point of the Bible is a turning point of history, it is also the gravitational center of God's salvation plan. It is the hinge where it turns Old Testament literature of Hebrew literature to that of Christian literature. The turning point is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the crux of everything, and that's a good phrase to use because crux comes from the Latin uh, meaning cross. In the death and resurrection of Christ is the center of gravity, not only for everything in the Bible, but for everything that God is doing in human history. What he is doing in the supreme rule of Jesus in all things. 
that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the consequences of his kingdom and his kingship, this is the, the gravitational center of what God is doing in the Bible in all of history. And so with that in mind, we see that as the melodic line of the Bible. We see that main thread moving throughout the whole Bible. The Bible moves from creation, where man lived in perfect relationship to God, to recreation where fallen men, sinful men, can be redeemed by God through the death and resurrection of Christ so that man can live in relationship with God now and perfectly in the new heavens and earth, the melodic line of the whole Bible. And so we want to keep that in mind whenever we're studying any individual book. This is God's story, his story. And so it's also right to focus on the second person of the Trinity and to say that Jesus Christ, the Son, is the central character of the story that God has breathed out in Scripture. The Son is the Word who was with God and was God and was there with God from the beginning. The story holds together in Jesus from the beginning to the end. Without Jesus, the whole story falls apart. And so all of this is said to help us understand our last principle. And so our last principle states that if we are to understand the Bible faithfully, then we must look for the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at every point. This means showing how the Old Testament points forward to Christ and ultimately to the cross. And it means showing how the New Testament its starting point is Jesus and the cross. And if we do not do this, we'll end up just moralizing the text, where we might move towards legalism, that to just do this, do this, do this, which ultimately shows no need for Christ and no need for the cross. So let me restate that principle a little bit shorter. To understand the Bible as Christians, we must show the gospel as Christians. We must show the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means at every point. Otherwise, we can just resort to frameworks. I bring my own framework and make the text say what I want it to say. And so I have one more illustration to put on the board to help us remember this principle. And it goes like this. We have the Old Testament and... It points towards the cross. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this crucial point in time. And then we have the New Testament. And its starting point starts with the cross. To understand this, you have to start here. And so, another way to maybe say this, we'll go to the old Sunday school teacher's Attic, where he says, in, with an enthusiasm to his children, and he says, what does the Old Testament teach? And the children shout back in unison, Jesus is coming. And then he shouts back, and what does the New Testament teach? And the children shout back, Jesus has come. And so that is it in a nutshell. And we want to keep that in mind if we're in this book or if we're in this part of the book. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, he taught basically this principle. He taught that the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward to him. John 5, 39, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So here Jesus is saying that the Old Testament was about him, and yet these people refuse to believe. After the resurrection, the risen Christ makes this plain in Luke 24, 25 through 27. It is Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, O foolish man and slow to heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus, again, is saying that the Old Testament is pointing to him. It's about him. And so now let's look a little further into Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. And he, said, he went on to say, Now, he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, all, that all things that are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer, would rise again from the dead on the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here he makes it clear again that not only does the Old Testament speak about him, he, he makes reference to four things that he was telling his disciples that they need to zero in on. The four things that Christ said for him to zero in on, according to that text, is, is his suffering. In the Old Testament, you see many references pointing towards that this Christ was going to suffer. And then he points to his resurrection, that he is going to rise again. That was made reference to in the Old Testament, that this was going to happen. He spoke that this was going to take place to his disciples before it took place. Then he points to repentance. Repentance is a huge theme in the, in the Bible. You see many stories that point towards repentance, that that's what they want these people to do. And then he points to the forgiveness of sin. How does sin, how sin can be forgiven? So the four things, his suffering, his resurrection, his repent, that repentance, and then forgiveness of sin. So those are some key things that if you see something like that as you're reading the Old Testament, it's pointing you, it's reminding you, Jesus. What is this saying about Jesus? How did he fulfill this? How did this take place in his life? So if we are to faithfully study God's word in light of the gospel, we have to find that relationship between the text and the cross. We have to be intentional to see it. We have to look for it. Otherwise, it's so easy to miss. And there are some strategies that can help us keep the gospel in mind when we study the Old Testament. And I'm going to go through three of these strategies. We're not in an Old Testament book, but I wanted to just kind of state these so that you can kind of be familiar. In fact, as Ryan is teaching in an Old Testament book on Sunday, you're going to see where he's used some of these strategies to help us as we listen on a Sunday morning this reality of seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. 
So let me just tell you what the three things are, and then I'll unpack them. One of them is developing a good sense of biblical theology. The second one is looking for New Testament controls. And the last one would be looking for typologies. So let's talk first about developing a good sense of biblical theology. Now this will help you see the gospel realities in the Old Testament, especially as you see promises in the Old Testament. Now when I talk about biblical theology, all that I'm talking about is what does the Bible teach or say about God so that I can know what to believe about God. So what you truly believe about God, what it means to live for God, that's your theology. And so the question is, is it biblical? And, and we want our theology to be biblical, and so we want to make sure that we're getting a clear picture of who God is by being in the Bible, letting it tell us. And so we want to understand our passage that we're, we're studying in a wider text in the sense that what is being said here, like there's a little story, we can kind of see an event's taking place, and, and, and we're, we can begin to see within those stories that God is, is showing in, in a little sh- nutshell, little picture of some aspect of his progressive plan of salvation. And this is in the Old Testament. And the best way to do that is to land on his promises his covenant promises. And so, and the, and the Old Testament is like a catalog of promises that he makes to his, old, his people. And the New Testament can show us how those promises are fulfilled. So, if you're reading in an Old Testament and you see a promise, you can go to the margin. If your Bible has margins with cross-references in it, you, you can look to see what New Testament book that they're in passage that they're pointing to. So you'll see a promise, and, and then you, you look at the number. Okay, I'm in verse 12, and you come over to verse 12 of the, of the cross references, and you'll see, oh, 1 Corinthians, you know, 120. And, and then you go to the New Testament, and you look it up, and the New Testament is telling you either how that was fulfilled, what, what that might mean, especially if it's a quote. So that can help you make those connections. You see this promise, how was it fulfilled? How did Jesus do that? And, and it helps you bridge the gap. So if we were studying an Old, passenger, an Old Testament passage, I would have you be looking at cross-references to help you land on what does the New Testament say about it. So that's building a biblical theology. You want to have a right view of God and how did God state the promises and how were they fulfilled? The second strategy to help us travel from the Old Testament to the New Testament is to look for New Testament controls. A New Testament control is where the Old Testament is quoted, either directly or indirectly. And the New Testament writers, they get, they're interpreting that quote for us. And so we want to hear what they have to say because they're helping us make that connection of gospel realities. Where it was hinted at in the Old Testament, they make it more plain in the New Testament. So we want to see that connection. In Psalm 22, 1, you hear, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ever heard of that quote? 
Is it found in the New Testament? Yeah, yeah. And, and so that one wouldn't be too, too hard to find. In fact, you would go to your cross-reference, and it would tell you it's in Matthew, it's also in Mark, and, and you could go there and you could read Jesus said that and where he said it, what was he doing, how, you know, what was going on. And so you're getting a bigger picture. So New Testament controls is looking for um, those interpretations of what was said in the, um, the New Testament. How about this one in Genesis 22, where it's about Abraham and Isaac, and he's in the passage, and, and God tells Abraham, he says, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Did you ever hear that, that quote? Yeah, so that's another familiar quote that's found in the New Testament. And, and if we would go and we would look, what, what does that, how does that point to Jesus? What does that tell me about what Jesus has done? What it helps me to do is that I don't look at the Abraham passage and, and, and moralize it to, I just need to be more obedient. I need to be obedient like Abraham. I, I pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to be obedient. That's what will make God happy. No, what, what I'm, what I'm going to miss is that God's foreshadowing that, that he is going to provide the needed sacrifice. There's substitution is taking place. I cannot ever do enough to appease God. And, and so I could go to a Hebrews 11, 17, and I can see that same phrase, and it, it helps me to see that there's more to this than just the story. It, it tells me that sacrifice is taking place in substitution. The greatest sacrifice? Jesus. God provided a sacrifice for Abraham. He's going to provide it for men. Jesus. So, so we, it helps us to pull in that reality. So we looked at building a well-developed biblical theology, and we looked for New Testament controls. And the third strategy to help us travel from the Old Testament to the New Testament is typology. And this is where a figure in the Old Testament seems to be a type of Christ, a shadow of Christ, a pale reflection of Christ. Now, he's not the Christ, but he's a type of Christ, a reflection of the reality that is to come. So, for example, Moses is a type of Christ because of the way he, that he redeems God's people from slavery in Egypt. Christ redeems God's people from the slavery of sin. And so we, we look at how this little moment of redemption is really seen in the greater moment of redemption of what Christ fulfills. And we can look at David. In fact, Ryan did this in his sermon on, in 1 Samuel. He said that David was a type of Christ. He was a king. And who was going to be the real king? Jesus. And, and so we see how as David, he rules God's people and defeats God's enemy. We see how Jesus as king can, can rule his people and defeat our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. So typology can be a way to help us land on, the, on what Christ is, has really done. This is a little picture of the big thing that Christ has done. And, and you can also go the opposite with the antichrist. That's contrast to the type of Christ. So, for example, Pharaoh. He does everything that he can to stop God's people 
from being redeemed. So he is like an antichrist. He is against Christ, against redemption of God's people. Saul is like an antichrist. He wanted to destroy David. He is antichrist. And so when we look at the opposition and we look at what Christ has done, it magnifies the victory of how Christ overcome these antichrists that look to squash, to, to put a stop. So those are three things that you can use, three strategies to help you. And when you're in the Old Testament, to help you see the connection of the cross. And so let me state this principle again. If we are to understand the Bible faithfully, then we must look for the gospel. That is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at every point. This means showing how the Old Testament points forward to Christ, ultimately to the cross, and how the New Testament starting point is Jesus and the cross. And we want to seek to do this so that we don't moralize the text. We just don't stop at a to-do list, to, at legalism, or, um, or even stop at frameworks. So these truths are especially important if we are studying the Old Testament because we don't tend naturally to travel through the cross when we're in the Old Testament. However, I mean, the past few years, he, we've been doing the Nancy Guthrie studies. She has done a really good job of helping us see these stories in the Old Testament and how they point to Christ and even on to the further of how he's going to continue to fulfill that which is not here, the new heavens and the new earth. And and so we've been fortunate in that respect that this is kind of familiar territory for many of us. And, And so that's some of the ways, some of the strategies she used to help us see that reality. And if you, as you're listening to Ryan or whoever's preaching on Sunday morning, you're, you're going to see them travel through the cross. You're going to see how their, their last point tends to land on, how did Christ fulfill this? How is this pointing to Christ? And, um, and so uh, it, it helps us to see and magnify Christ. That's who we want a Savior. That's who we want to just see as our treasure. And this helps us to see that. So, on to what we're doing, because we're in a New Testament book, are we not? And, and so, we want to make sure that we don't forget the gospel, that we don't want to forget those gospel truths within a New Testament passage. We, we're so familiar with the gospel phrases, his death, his resurrection, that it's so easy to just read right past it. It's real easy to just not land there, and, and land for the the, the tell me what to do kind of verse. And, but we, we want to look at what has Christ done? What does that mean? What does it mean within the text I'm reading, I'm studying? And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is we want to know how does the gospel fit within the text that I'm working with. And that's what we're going to do now. So this will bring me to where I, I left off on our work in the Colossians um, um, passage last week. We went through several steps, and if you don't, you don't really necessarily need to pull out that Colossians paper. If you, you should have two things. Um, you should have page 34 pulled out. That's one of your pages of your Bible toolkit, and you have a new handout. It was on the table when you showed up. I'm going to walk through this paper that is called Text Preparation Worksheet. It's just like your homework that you're going to have 
like you had this week and that you will have for the rest of our time together. Unfortunately, I didn't do a very good job, and I apologize, of help, helping you take all that, that work that we did on the Colossians passage and help you to get it onto here, onto the homework sheet. And so I'm going to go over what that would have looked like had I told you that. And you're like going, this really would have been helpful for my homework. <laughs> and so it would have been, and I apologize. And so we, we will help you in that, and hopefully this will make more sense so that when you go to do your next passages down the road, you'll be like, okay, I'm getting this a little bit easier. So look at your handout, the text preparation. And question one says, outline the structure of the text in the way that represents the author's organization of the text. So what I want to do in that spot that is on there is I want to put the information that I came up with. So I will put my headings that I came up with. Do you remember how much work I had on the Colossians? There was like three pages worth. Well, all I'm going to record now are my headings. How I, and so like, look at that paper on, the, on text preparation. My first heading, I said, was pray regularly. And then what I have jotted after that, I'm telling you that verse 9 is that first section. And I decided on that heading because this is what Paul is doing. He seems to be praying for these believers without ceasing. I see that he's asking God to do in light of gospel growth, which was stated earlier. So that's, that's in a nutshell, I just jot that information. The reason why I think pray regularly was a good heading. You, you could have come up with something totally different of a heading, but landed on the same kind of reason why. All of our homework is going to look a little bit different. So just know that. You're, you're not going to come to small group tonight and, and find the same three headings or two headings or four headings that I'm going to have or that somebody else has. So just, just know that. Okay, heading number two. Prayer, prayer lived out. And, I, and, and this section includes verses 10 and 11. And I decided this, since this is what it will look like in a believer who has God filling him with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The believer will do these things because God will produce them in them as they seek to walk that way. So I'm, this is the reason why I decided to say prayer lived out based on that text. My last heading was prayer of thanksgiving. This is my third section. It contains verses 12 through 14. And I decided on this heading because this is what Paul is thankful for. He makes mention of what God has done already, and this moves him to joy and gratitude. <laughs> and so I, I, that's what I would jot down in that area. So then I would go to my second question, question two which states, what emphasis does the structure reveal? So what is my main point? What is the main point that seems to be jumping out at me? And so I write it down. Prayer jumps out as the means for, which, for us to go to God, knowing that he is the one that is sufficient. He does the work. Prayer is to be done regularly, asking God to help the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of his will for spiritual wisdom and understanding so that it is seen in the believer who joyously gives thanks to the Father who has already done so much. Big emphasis. 
that's what I'm going to see. I'm going to narrow it down, but right now this is what I'm seeing based on all this work that I've already done. Now I record that under question two, and I go to question three, which question three wants to know how does the context, the immediate context, affect this passage. And so I jot down what I see, that in verse three, Paul was praying here and giving thanks, then in verses 4, 5, and 8, it shows that Paul mentioned the gospel has come to the Colossians. It has brought about hope, faith, and love for the brethren. And then I kind of jot down, therefore, since the gospel has done this in the Colossian saints, Paul is moved in verse 9 for this reason. That's where he connects the two with that phrase, for this reason to pray for them. So my little bullet, this tells me that what I saw is an F emphasis or a main point of the passage, it's, it seems to be lining up. And so I keep moving forward. And I go to the passages or the, t the verses after our passage. And in verses 15 through 20, these verses highlight the deity of Christ, the one who brought redemption to the Colossians, the one who will affect the change that Paul is praying for. And so it really helps me to see the greatness of Christ in those verses. And so this helps me to see the emphasis also supports the melodic line of Colossians, which is Jesus Christ is supreme Lord and all-sufficient Savior. So it all seems to be fitting together. I'm remembering the melodic line. I'm, I'm looking at, at how the emphasis is being supported on both sides. That I need to pray to the all-sufficient Savior, the one who can cause all that Paul is praying for to take place. So it seems to me that it's supporting the main point that I saw in verses 9 through 14. And so that's kind of what I would record under context. And now I move to question four. And this is as far as we got with our Titus homework as well. And it wants me to write out a sentence to state the central theme, the main point of the passage that I have in mind. And so I'm also keeping the melodic line in my mind. That's a helpful thing when you're doing this 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 exercise. My, my sentence, the all-sufficient God has done great work and will continue to do great work as we seek him in prayer. So I narrowed it down to all of that. And that's where we land in our homework as well. And so now I want to go over how we finish the homework. So this coming week, you're going to answer question five and six on your text preparation. That'll be next week. And so I'm going to do that now with this Colossians passage. I'm going to tell you or run through how we go about doing those next steps. And then after next week, we will start, we have five more passages to go through. And so when we go to our next passage, which is 5 through 16, that we'll, we'll do the whole thing. We'll, we'll answer questions 1 through 6. And we'll do that each week. So we've kind of broken this one up into two phases. So this is where you're going to refer to page 34. This is your Bible toolkit. This is what you can go to if you get stuck or if you, if you forget. Now, how do I go out doing it? This can have some helps. It doesn't mean you have to do everything that's on there. It just may be enough to, to jog your memory or enough to get you going. Okay? So what you're going to do is keep that other um, paper in front of you, your text preparation, and because um, we're going to go now. It's, it's page three 
on your text preparation, that the number five is at the top of it. It says, how does your text relate to the gospel? Everybody have that page? It looks like this. I'm sure it doesn't help you know me holding it up. So you basically want these two pages in front of you, okay? Okay, so um, we want to answer that question, how does the gospel relate to my passage that I am studying? And so step nine on the Bible toolkit, if you look at that, if you glance over there, are some bullets that just kind of help you to maybe think through um, some gospel truths and you know, how does the passage point to Christ? You know, what does it tell me about God and his purposes? You know, you look for gospel nuggets even, like is there a gospel word in there that talks about redemption or a gospel word that talks about, you know, um, eternal life? Is there a gospel word that, that talks about forgiveness? You, you look for those things, and that will help you to start jotting down some, some information. So I did that for our Colossians um, passage. So if you want to look at your text under question five, you can look at what I came up with from our Colossians passage. And so verse 13 and 14, these verses reminded me that God did the work of taking me from the kingdom of darkness, which was in the text, and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. That, those were words in the text. And so those are gospel words. That's a gospel reality. It's showing me how, what God did. And then it had the, re, the word redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's gospel nugget. It shows me that redemption has come through Christ. What is redemption? Forgiveness of sin. So I'm seeing gospel truths that I don't want to forget. I, wanna, I want that to help me think about what this passage's main point, how this helps it. And if I remember the context of what happened before our text verses, I am reminded that the gospel, the word of truth, that's how they say it in Colossians, it came to the Colossians and it affected change. It saved them and brought forth fruit, the fruit of faith, love, and hope. So God is working in the Colossians. Paul is reminding us of that, that God did a work of salvation through God, through Jesus, and that means he'll continue to do more work. He'll bring about the change in the heart of the believer for, the good and for their good and God's glory. So the gospel truths here help me to remember that's true about me. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. God has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. God has done so much. Does that not encourage me to think he'll answer Paul's prayer? Do you see how the gospel helps me to just, re it highlights Jesus and what he can do? And, and so the gospel helps us to realize that I don't look at my text and just say, I just got to please God. I have to walk in a manner that's going to please him. And it, and it sounds like it's all, about, it's all up to me to do that. But then I realize, no, prayer's involved. God's got to do some work. And then, as a result of that work, I trust him, and he builds the fruit of good works. He brings about a desire to please him. And if I'm in his word, I see ways that that can be done. So gospel helps us to remember the things that God's done and will continue to do. Now, sentence six. This is one of your last um, sentences. So you're going to do five.
question five this coming week for your Titus passage, and then you're going to also do question six. So question six states, in one sentence, what is the author's aim for his audience in this text? And given that aim, what are the implications or applications that are being drawn out? So we're going to kind of break this question apart, and we're going to start with author's aim. So you can see I have step 10 on your toolkit. So if you go to step 10, it just kind of gives you some information about, okay, what was, what was the one thing that this author wants me to walk away with? And, you know, and I'm going to go back to my emphasis. What, what main idea did I come, come away with? And maybe I'm going to narrow that down, or maybe I just want to land there and make sure that it's clear in my mind. This, I think, is the main point. And so this is what I jotted down as the author's main point. He wants the Colossians to see that to walk in a manner worthy of God and to please him, to bear fruit in every good work, to increase in the knowledge of God comes through God, from God through Christ. And therefore, we must pray to God, trusting that he will do this work just as he did the work of salvation. All of those gospel truths that he listed in that. And so that seems to be the emphasis that we can pray to God because we are in his sons and in his kingdom. We have been rescued. We have been forgiven. So we jot down the main point. Then we go to, what, so what does that imply? If this is his point, what does that imply? What does that mean? And, and so we go to answer that. And, and then the, before we do that, then the other thing is, if this is what it means, then what am I to do? How do I make this relevant? How do I apply this? We're getting to that point of relevancy. We've been doing a lot of work in this book, and now we're going to see what, what, how this is going to be fleshed out in our lives. So question um, 11, step 11 on your toolkit helps you with coming with those implications and applications. There's some, some little questions that you can ask to help you come up with the implications if they don't pop, jump out at you. Um, this can be, and you don't have to come up with a lot of them. Maybe you're just going to come up with one thing. This implies this, therefore that means this. So look at your, uh, your text there. So I read the author's aim. Now let's look under implication and application. And so this is the implications that I came up with. If this is true, what the author's aim is, then what does that mean? It means that I too, like the Colossians, am redeemed. I'm forgiven, and I need to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I need that same prayer. And, and so I, too, need some change happening in my life. I, too, need to remember the gospel. Paul's saying these gospel words not because he couldn't find anything else, but because he wanted to remind them of these truths, that this is a valuable thing to hang on to, 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 to remember and so I, I need to remember the gospel, that if God does the work of salvation, then he will be faithful to do the work of change. It encourages me to trust God. It reminds me that God's not done. So, application. What is, so what, what, is, what do I do about this? Well, I too must pray and ask to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, especially while I'm reading his word. I need some understanding. I need some help. I need some wisdom. And so I pray. And I pray with a thankful heart. Why? 
I have been forgiven. Redemption has come. What God has already done should ignite a joy, a praise of thanksgiving for God and for his mercy. So it helps me to, to, to not just think that, that God's past work is, has no reference to me. It should be a fuel to ignite my passion for him because of the, of the mercy that he's given to me. And then I, need, I seek to do something. It says to walk in a manner worthy of God, to please him, to bear fruit in every good work, to increase in the knowledge of God. How do I do that? Well, I'm praying for spiritual wisdom and understanding. And, and so I'm not going to just stand here waiting for something to happen. I can read in God's word that love my, my neighbor. This, this is something that God wants me to do. It must be something that he, it would please him. And, and, and so I seek to love God to help me love my neighbor. And, and so there's things in God's words that are helping me to understand there is a way to walk that is worthy of him. There is a way to please him. But I'm praying the whole time, God, help me to do that. I'm, give me the wisdom and the understanding that I might do this and then the fruit of the reality of this is God working in your life. And, and, and so we see again God's faithfulness. So in your homework this week, you're going to t- apply question five to your text, your Titus one through four. You're going to answer how does the gospel information in your Titus homework, what, are you, where are you, what do you see in there that's gospel information? And you're going to kind of jot it down and, and maybe how it's, it's fueling your emphasis. And then you're going to go into what is the aim of what he's saying here? And what does that mean? What does that imply? And so that is where we are with our, our study. These are the tools in which you can um, use on any um, epistle, basically, since that's what we're studying. But your Bible toolkit allows you to go to a different genre, a narrative. Like, like Ron this past week. How many of you noticed him talking about um, a word that kept coming up? He was saying... Um, like javelin, spear, and knife, three different words, but he said it was really just one thing. And, and so those are the kind of tools that can help us. Like you'll see a word, and, and, and then you'll see another word, and you're like, they're kind of the same thing, but, but it's not the same word. It's not knife, and it's not spear, but it's the same reality. And so that kind of helps us to land on, in repetition, the same kind of a point. But you guys, let's go to our small groups. Let me pray and close us, and we'll talk more about how this all fleshes out.